This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by Bliss. As a busy mum, I'm all for finding some me time without having to leave home. So Bliss, the app that makes prioritising self-care easier than ever, couldn't have come at a better time. With Bliss, you can book an in-home massage, beauty or wellness treatment with a qualified and trusted professional that comes to you. Bliss brings you self-care your way on your schedule. Go to getbliss, that's getblys.com.au and use the code RON15 to save $15. And Mia Friedman was on the panel and I just remember listening to her talk thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to work in magazines in a Kerry Packer days. They were wild. So 12 of us were in Tommy Hilfiger's Infinity Pool with Beyonce and I think as a woman you think it's your God-given right to just snap your fingers and go right I want to be pregnant now super nervous about having another miscarriage and about two days into the conference I start to bleed don't give up everything for your kids keep something for yourself from deciding on a whim to pack up her little Mitsubishi and leave Brisbane for the glossy magazines of Sydney, to the stone she received from a magic healing man in India that remained taped to her body throughout an entire pregnancy. Bronwyn Wakan has tales to tell, so it's no wonder she spent the good part of her career in magazines and media. She's edited some of the biggest titles in the country. She's rubbed shoulders with the likes of Beyonce and Tommy Hilfiger, And in amongst it all, she's raised three children. Here, we talk working during the golden era of magazines, knowing when it was time to shift gears, and why, as a parent, it's important not to give up everything for your kids. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the vivacious and venerable Bronwyn McCann. I grew up in a media family and so far as my dad worked in radio in Brisbane. So, you know, while my friends had part-time jobs, I was working as the promo girl that would drive around with, you know, a partner at the time who could drive. And I would hand out the free stuff out the back of the radio vans where we'd do live crosses to the station and say, hey, come and get your icy cold cans of Coke. We'll be here for the next 10 minutes. So radio and media was always in my blood. And I remember sitting down watching do you remember that show called the panel and Mia Friedman was on the panel and I just remember listening to her talk thinking that's what I want to do I want to work in magazines and it was like a real light bulb moment for me because at the time as I said I was now I'd I'd finished school I was at uni doing a degree an arts degree majoring in um, media studies and journalism I was probably like maybe two and a half years in to maybe two years and saw Mia thought that's what I want to do that's exactly what I want to do so I got on on the uh, internet and realized actually all the magazines are based in Sydney and I lived in Brisbane so I um, just made a snap decision to go I'm going to drive to Sydney and I'm just going to move to Sydney and it's amazing when I think of that now 
as an adult, as a 43-year-old woman, I'm like, oh my God, I had balls as a, what would I have been, a 21, 20-year-old girl to go, yeah, I'm just going to get in the car and drive to Sydney. Like, why wouldn't I do that? So that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of, actually, is is that I had that get up and go to do that. So I literally, I coerced my brother into coming with me. We drove to Sydney. I still now, whenever I drive past this dodgy little motel in Sydney, I think, oh my God, that's where we stayed when we arrived in Sydney late at night <laughs> on that drive. I basically just went knocking and pestered everyone. And at the time I got an interview with um, the current, who, who then was working um, as head of advertising at Dolly Magazine. And I didn't want to do advertising, but I thought, hey, this is this could be an inn into Park Street, which is where all the big magazines were based um, under Kerry Packer. So I went to the interview, got the job, thought, okay, let's let's give this a go. And after three months on the internal intranet, there was a job position to be Mia Freeman's PA pop up, and I was like, boom, I'm going to get this. So I've gone up to her office. We've had this big chat, and it was just like an instant kinship she offered me the job on the spot in the office so and then that was kind of history because you know she's been such a mentor and a and and a guiding light and now a close family friend ever since so then I started my Cosmo days so I was Mia's PA for maybe 18 months or so then Mia basically moved me through all the different positions that you can hold in a magazine and I remember at the time she identified in, in me saying, you know, you're going to make a great editor, but to make a great editor, you've got to sit in all the seats. You've got to learn the mechanics of the magazine. You can't just go straight from being an assistant to now being a fashion editor and a beauty editor and an editor. You've got to really go and do the grunt work. So I went, I started as her PA, then I became production editor, which is where you help find the pictures that go with the story. So the story might be, why does he ghost you after the first date or whatever? And then I'd be like, you know, on the picture agencies trying to find a picture that would match the story and and then manage the production cycle, getting the, the pages off to the printer. So then I did that for a while. Then she moved me to a junior beauty writer. And that was kind of where it all took off from because like the beauty industry, especially back then, like in the Kerry Packer days, they were wild. It was God, today I'm being flown on a sea jet to lunch. And then next week I'm, you know, going to the UK for the launch of a lipstick. So the time as a beauty editor was an amazing thing. But it's also a really pivotal, important role in magazines because you become, often even more so than the editor, you become the first line of defence with advertisers because beauty advertisers are such key players in in a financial sense for magazines and, and in the industry. They're such a big industry you really needed to have a close working relationship with advertising because it would it would directly impact whether your magazine got the pages for that new moisturiser launch or whatever it might be. So a big part of that was working and building relationships with advertisers and a big part of it was just having an awesome beauty cupboard with every product imaginable, you know, I think. And the, the junkets, like the gifts and the junkets were off the charts. Like when I think about it now, I think, God, did I appreciate that in the moment? Because when I think about it now, I think, that's amazing. Like I got flown. There was 12 of us from around the world, different cosmopolitans. And we got flown to Tommy Hilfiger's private house in on the island of Mystique in the Caribbean. It's the launch of Beyonce's collaboration with for fragrance. And so 12 of us were in Tommy Hilfiger's infinity pool with Beyonce, swimming fully clothed, dancing to her songs. And I've got a, a selfie 
which, you know, before selfies were a thing, Beyonce and I completely like dressed up to the nines and completely saturated because we're swimming. We're standing in Tommy Hilfiger's infinity pool and I've got a selfie with Beyonce. I'm thinking they were wild times. Like, did I appreciate at the time how incredible that was? And I hope I did. I can't, you know, but it was just that that was the life of a beauty editor. How do you feel looking back on that now when the industry's changed so much? I definitely want you to keep going with your career, but as someone that loves media and loves publishing, how do you feel looking back now with how much it's changed with the nostalgia and seeing the way the industry's developed? Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty industry is is flourishing and is alive and well. It's now just in all, you know, obviously populated in different formats as opposed to, to magazines. But I look at it and I think I had the luxury of being in the golden era. Like I worked in the Kerry Packer era and that was just, you know, nothing can compare to that because from that moment on, it was a slow decline. And I I loved, I loved working at Kerry Packer's ACP. I loved working at Bauer. I loved working at, you know, all the different iterations that it became and they always treated me very well. I had an excellent career and respected and looked after and all of those great things. So I could never complain about that. But I guess I when after moving from being a beauty editor, I then went and relived my teenage emotional angst as the editor of Dolly for a few years, which is also in, in Park Street there, same building, um, before I then came back as editor-in-chief of Cosmo. And I guess in that time frame of going from being beauty editor at Cosmo when magazines were revered and it was like amazing circulation increase and amazing, amazing. In that period, when I then went to Dolly and then came back, social media, into blogs, everything just exploded. Yeah, so magazines wow. were no longer that unique source of information. You know, like if you wanted to find something out, you were Googling it now or, you know, you were crowdsourcing it on social media. You weren't waking, waiting for a monthly magazine mm. to solve your emotional angst or your fashion crisis or your beauty issues or whatever else. So by the time I became editor-in-chief of Cosmo, it was really hard, like everything, getting eyeballs and people to open their wallets to buy the magazine each month was incredibly hard and incredibly challenging. And with that, at the same time, you've got a, a shrinking industry that is then, you know, advertising dollars aren't what they used to be, then your your marketing budget's not what they used to be. So everything kind of shrinks. So before you know it, you, you look up going, God, I remember when we used to have X amount budget every month to put together a magazine with 30 staff now I'm doing it on half that with 20 staff or 18 staff or something so you know and as I said like I had such a dream run I had the most phenomenal team I had awesome bosses some of my best friends now are still to this day the girls the friendships I made there like um, Justin Cullen and Zoe Foster Blake so you know they're like I got so much out of that period and to an extent, I think it's really, when I, when I made the decision to leave, a big part of that was I'd now been in that building for 17 years. Yeah. And I got to the point where I was sitting in meetings where, you know, the girls would be pitching story ideas in our features meeting, like, you know, suggesting what about a story about this? And I was thinking, oh, my God, this just feels like Groundhog Day. There is not a story that I have not heard or written or, you know, tried or whatever. And it just felt like this doesn't feel right anymore because you need someone in here who's like going, and amazing, and we could do this, and that looks great. Whereas I feel like I'd, I'd run my course there. And also I could hear the music slowly being turned down 
on, you know, magazines were closing, closing all around us. I didn't want to be the last one at the party dancing in the dark. Um, and it felt like the right time. My, my, um, my eldest daughter Harper had just started school and that all of a sudden became like, well, hang on, I, I want to be there to pick her up from school and long-term as they all enter school, I want to be able to have those conversations about their day or their friendship that you can't have on demand, you know, like, tell me now quick because I've got five minutes. It's like that those sort of conversations just randomly pop up in aisle five of the supermarket or, you know, when you're driving to soccer practice or something. So I feel like I left at the right time, but a big part about why I think I don't know that I could ever go back into working for a company in a you know office job Monday to Friday is that I don't think anything will ever compare to that magic golden era of being in Cosmo. Like it felt like when we were in our Cosmo bubble, we were a family and nothing could hurt us. Like if someone was getting married or had a miscarriage or, you know, was having, I don't know, whatever was going on in their life, we all shared in it. And we never had any bitchiness or, you know, bad. Everyone just genuinely loved and supported each other. And so it was such a moment in time. And I know even now talking, you know, when I when I meet up with staff that we worked together at the time, it's like everyone has the same thing. It's like you, you can never replicate that. It was just such a golden moment in time. Wow, it was such an amazing time. Like even just you telling me about it makes, like lights me up. It's incredible. And it's, I guess, sad in a lot of ways that it's changed so much, but it's incredible to hear about your experience. So I do want to get to how you then, I guess, re-engineered your career to work around children. But before we do, you're working in these big jobs. You're having this amazing experience. When does starting a family come into the picture for you? Um, so look, I am somebody who, once I make a decision, it's like, I want to do it now. Not like let's work towards that in a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever. It's got to be now, like tomorrow. And so I had met my husband a few years earlier and I knew straight away the minute I met him, I said to my friends, he's the father of my children, but he had a girlfriend at the time. So I had to wait for him to <laughs> finish up that relationship. Then when we got together and we decided, yep, this is it, and we got engaged quite quickly and, and well, sorry, we didn't get engaged quite quickly. Once we got engaged, we had the wedding maybe six months later. So I was like, right, let's go, baby. And I think as a woman, you think it's your God-given right to just snap your fingers and go, right, I want to be pregnant now. I mean, it comes be perfect. And yeah. And it's really not. So as a personality who needs things to happen right now, I tried for six months and I had one miscarriage in that time and six months to me felt like oh my god I've been trying for five years there's something wrong with me or him or whatever so I've sent Phil off for all the tests in under the sun and I went and had everything done and I, I think at the time I had like four or five different doctors on the run and I'd have different stories with each of them like one would be the truth one would be that I'm actually six months further on than I am one would be I've been trying for two years and nothing's happened um, so I was just trying to fast, fast track it in any way I could. And so finally, in the end, it ended up being a thyroid issue that was preventing me from falling pregnant. So the minute I fixed that, I fell pregnant, which was probably now a year after we first started trying. And I was like, my God, that's amazing. I'm pregnant. It coincided with every two years, Cosmo would do a global conference where all of the editors from around the, the Cosmos from around the world would all converge wherever the conference was that year. And this particular is in, in India. 
So that was super exciting. Never been to India. So off we go to India. I'm maybe like eight weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks pregnant. So I haven't told anyone. Super nervous about having another miscarriage. So I go to India and about two days into the conference, I start to bleed. And I was just so distraught thinking, I can't believe this is happening again. So I'm at the conference and during the conference, we obviously had Cosmo related things. And then they had all of these other activities and things, optional things that you could do. And a lot of the other editors were talking about this magic healing man that they'd been to see. And it was like, oh my gosh, I've had a bad knee for years and he's fixed it. Or I've had this headache and he fixed it and all the rest of it. So I thought, I'm going to go see the magic healing man and see if he can fix my baby. And so off I go and he lies me down. He does all of these things with his hands over my stomach. And then he said, you're not having a miscarriage, but I'm going to give you this and I'm still bleeding at this stage. I'm giving you this tiny purple stone. So imagine like a diamond, but except it was purple. Because I'm going to give you this tiny purple stone. You need to keep it fastened to the left side of your body, either like on your on the, the top of your hand or on your shoulder or something, uh, and it will keep the baby safe. So I was like, right, give me a Band-Aid, off we go, purple stone, it's wow. in the left side of my body. So I leave there. I come back to Australia still wearing my purple stone, the bleeding stops. I go to the doctor, strong heartbeat, all fine, baby's still there, bleeding stopped. I'm like, amazing. And then I had this moment going, oh, I didn't actually ask the magic healing man how long I had to keep the stone on the left side of my body. So I was like, there's no way I'm taking this stone off now. So for nine months, I had this stone taped to my body and I had to keep moving it because I'd get like a manky arm or like a manky shoulder where it'd be like getting all gross. And then I'd do the Today Show every Wednesday morning. So I'd have to wear, make sure I would wear something that would hide this big Band-Aid stone taped on the side of my body. So I, I, I had a Harper, like, took, you know, full term, full pregnancy, um, full term. I remember having that moment in the delivery room when she came out and I just remember taking that stone off going, we're done. And we so I've kept rest. it to this day. And, yeah, I've still got it. And she she always asks, can I keep it in my room? And I will give it to her. But at the moment I'm like, oh, are you still a bit reckless that you're going to lose it because it's still so so precious? But, um, yeah, so that was my very first experience. So my friends always laugh now whenever I, you know, mention, oh, you know, Harper turned 12 or something. They're like, oh, and to think she was just once a tiny purple stone taped to the side of your body. <laughs> <laughs> so were you relaxed after you had that doctor's appointment telling you that everything was okay or did you keep that stress a little bit throughout and that's why you kept the stone taped? I think once you've had a miscarriage, I don't think you can ever fully relax in a pregnancy. Mm. Maybe I did once I got to like 30 weeks or something where, where you know that my internal doctor started going yeah this baby could be born and survive now and you know so I've maybe then I relaxed into it but I, I do feel like once you've struggled to be pregnant or you've had miscarriages or stillbirths or any of those awful things you kind of are always you know quietly nervous and crossing your fingers that nothing happens yeah and so how did you navigate pregnancy while working a really busy job did you find it challenging emotionally or physically or did it run quite smoothly besides this little hiccup yeah i mean navigated it in you know nine inch heels at the time but no <laughs> i had no i had no morning sickness i had no anything i had a dream pregnancy um yeah so it was great and yeah as i said like our office was so fantastic and you know, we, we, it was an absolute dream. And I think I worked right up until maybe like 36 weeks or something like that. And then I remember thinking, oh, 
I'm going to finish. No, I must have worked with 38 weeks because I remember thinking I've got two weeks till this baby comes and I'd booked all of these appointments and my best friend at the time who'd also struggled to get pregnant happened to fall pregnant two weeks after me. So our babies were born two weeks apart. So we both finished work at the same time. We were thinking, how great's this? We're going to go and like lie on the beach and go and have pregnancy massages and it's going to be awesome, awesome, awesome. And so off we went, we'd booked like this four-hour day spa treatment and special pregnancy massage and everything. Cost us an absolute bomb, but we're like, we, we, de- we deserve it. We've carried these this thing for, you know, almost nine months. And I fell asleep during the whole thing. And I literally woke <laughs> up to being, you know, shook going, you can put your clothes back on when you're ready and join us for tea. And I walked out of my bed and my best friend was like, oh, my God, wasn't that amazing? I was like, I slept through the whole thing. Oh, that's um, so funny. I, I, and then I came early. So I didn't get, she came two weeks early. So I literally had like two days of um, maternity leave without a baby. And then she came two weeks early. So, yeah, she was a um, and, and a reasonably easy birth. Like, you know, like I had all the drugs and everything, but, but she, there was no complications. And, you know, to your point about do you ever carry that stress and anxiety during a pregnancy? I think I continued to carry it even after she was out because I was so panicked of her dying Mm. I would I think I made her a bad sleeper so every time she would wake every 45 minutes so I was like a zombie walking around going oh my god I've had no sleep I've been awake nine times in the night but I think I created that because every time she'd make a little "Eh," in the night I'd jump to her and and you know so I probably created that yeah that's so similar to how I felt I think as well you're in such a haze of you're half asleep at all times maybe or you're like half awake I don't know which way you look at it but I would react to my son anytime he'd make a noise because you're all of a sudden waking up and you just sort of grab them straight away so I I felt really similar yeah and by by the third baby I was just like you're fine you cried out you'll let you know so by the third I was really okay but my first two the first two which were girls Grace and Harper I really struggled with Grace was just a projectile vomiter but I had, I had a sleep whisperer come in and, and help me with those two because they were Harper. I think I created that. Grace just had really terrible reflux that then made her, you know, stay awake. But I had a sleep whisperer come in and help with those two at about five months to get them sleeping better. And then for Theo, my third, I was like, I got this. I don't need to pay someone. I've got this. And so I did. I did him. And, um, yeah, so... And you know, third one, you know, as I think most parents would would say, is by the time you have your set, your your third or your fourth, whatever, you just you you sew up the curve in what you know, and you you know you kind of get through it a lot easier. It is amazing what you learn on the job. So, what did maternity leave look like for you with Harper in terms of how long you took off work and how you returned to work? So, with Harper, I took a year off, and then or eleven months. I took eleven months off, and then. My boss I, um, was so kind in letting me return because I definitely had that moment going, oh, my God, can I go back to work? Do I want to leave her? Can I can I do it? And my boss at the time was really fantastic in, in that he let me come back three days a week. Um, and so that was such a great way to ease back into it. So I think I did three days a week for the first three months. Then I went back, I think, four days in the office and one from home from then on. And then I pretty much... I actually feel like maybe I even went back to work pregnant because I think in my head I was so paranoid about it taking ages to fall pregnant again that we started trying quite soon because I found out I was pregnant with Grace around Harper's first birthday. 
So somewhere like newly going back to work in that part-time capacity, I found out I was pregnant with Grace. Wow. Was that overwhelming or did that sit okay with you because you'd sort of been through it before and you're feeling a bit more confident about the whole thing? I think all of that. Plus I think I was just grateful to go, oh my God, great. I've got another one happening. I come from a big family. I'm the youngest of five and we're all super close. I'm the baby of five, but you know, my brothers and sisters and I are all really close. We holiday together. We hang out together. Like my brother and I go to the gym most mornings together and he comes over every Saturday night. So we're very, very close. So I wanted that for my children as well. So the idea of having kids close in age, it's a little bit like ripping the Band-Aid off, just get it done, you know? So you're just in that hole of sleeplessness and pooey nappies and all of that all at one time rather than having to keep going back to that stage so we made a conscious decision to go let's like rapid fire have have the have the babies and my husband was like two let's do two and I just knew I had three like three was always my number you know and I think he was probably convinced into three because um I mean a I just felt pregnant but b I think probably having two girls in his he was probably thinking oh do we go three and go for the boy and but yes in the end obviously we wouldn't change a thing and and I got my way I got three (laughs) great three is a bit of a party I quite like that I think in my head I probably want two but I think my heart wants three so I'll probably be copying you I think something that stresses mothers maybe all parents but particularly mothers out can be returning to work pregnant when they've just had this leave and all those feelings of guilt that we feel in every which way. Did you feel guilty or nervous about telling them you were pregnant again when you were just returning or how did you navigate that? I mean, I don't remember feeling that way because again, I had, I'd been there for a long time. So I'd already earned my stripes. I'd proven, you know, what I could do. So I wasn't in a new role thinking, oh my God, oh my God, they don't know if I'm good or not. And now I'm going back saying I'm pregnant again. So I'd been there at at that stage, probably, I don't know, like 15, 14 years or something, but at that pregnancy stage. Um, So I'd already proven myself and they knew me and they probably knew that actually, if we can get three days out of her, she'll end up doing five anyway, because picking up bits and pieces while breastfeeding late at night or whatever. Um, So I didn't. And I think it's also testament to having great bosses. Like I had really great understanding people around me and um, that that enables you that and at the end of the day I think they recognize that this is how life works right men can't have babies women have the babies and it's our babies that are the future that you know will run the companies and do the things and start the businesses so everyone's got to come to the party and that and, and be understanding otherwise the population just stops if no one has babies or feels guilty about doing it so I'm sure at the time probably just the close timing maybe I felt a little bit like oh sorry guys but I guess at the same time I knew I still had nine months like I was only just pregnant so I knew I still had nine months and then with Grace I only had six months maternity leave because at that stage I had I found a fantastic nanny for Harper when I went back to work and I had a fantastic nanny so things were in I had systems in place at home and I loved our nanny that I was like, I feel okay to go back after six months because I know that I'm leaving Grace and Harper in excellent hands. Um, so I went back up to six months with Grace. And again, I think I did, you know, three days a week and then went back to four with one from home. And then with Theo, poor little Theo, I think I went back up to three months, three or four months. <laughs> um, but again, because I, it was like a well-oiled machine by that stage. And I think you know, Harper was probably going off to kindy. So it meant the nanny would only have Grace and Theo at home. And 
you know, so that the timing worked out. And I think, again, by the time it's your third, you've kind of got it a bit figured out. And as I said with him, I nailed his sleeping quite early on. And so everything felt a bit easier. You said in an interview that I listened to that when you decided to step away from magazines, you did sort of question, will I be okay with just Bronwyn McCann as my identity, not editor-in-chief Bronwyn McCann as your identity. Can you tell us a bit about that and eventually deciding to step away from magazines? Working in magazines and particularly the time that I did where it was like, oh, you work in a magazine, like, wow, it's so glamorous and exciting and you felt very special, like you wore it like a badge of honour. When I said what I did or like, you know, I work at Cosmo, I'm beauty editor at Cosmo, I'm editor-in-chief at Cosmo, you could see people go, oh, wow, and was super interested in, like, impressed with with what you did, but also super interested in going, oh, my God, tell me about this. And is there a beauty cupboard and a fashion cupboard? And, you know, do you meet lots of celebrities and photo shoots and all that? So you always were the party favour, you know. So I, I remember in making my decision to leave whether I would struggle with that from an ego perspective of going, will I be okay and will anyone care about me anymore? Will I be okay with just going, hey, I'm Bronwyn as opposed to, yeah, I'm Bronwyn, I'm editor-in-chief of Cosmo. And it's funny because I thought about it a lot in the lead-up to leaving. And then after I left, I never thought about it again. It just was not a thing. And I never looked at a magazine, for, for not not out of any like, oh, I just can't look at it. I, you know, it hurts too much. It was like I just needed a break. So I didn't look at a magazine. I didn't even look at the cover of Cosmo for ages out of interest. So it surprised me how I just moved on. And I think the reason I did it is because I was deeply ready for it. And I knew that the reason why I wanted to leave was to be more involved in the kids' lives and what was going with them. You know, Harper had started school. The other two were at kindy. And I just knew I wanted to be there to do the drop-offs and the pickups and everything. But, um, yeah, so I never, I never struggled with that. And I know that there's a lot of other people with similar, um, you know, past careers as, as myself and they've maybe struggled a bit more. But I don't know. I just, in the end, I thought my identity was deeply connected to it, but it turns out it, it wasn't. Or maybe I just was able to let it go and it didn't care about it. Um, yeah, but that that was an interesting surprise for sure. Yeah, a lot of my guests, it seems that motherhood can sometimes solidify our wants and our goals more clearly. It's not always the case, but I am learning that from a lot of guests and it's quite comforting because you sometimes think, oh, if motherhood is perhaps changing my career in this way, is that a good thing or a bad thing? But for the most part, it seems to be a good thing, which then eventually leads you to found play, etc. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so Play Etc. came about as I I took a breather. So I, I left Cosmo, started throwing myself into, you know, the kids' life and school drop-offs and pickups and all of that sort of stuff. And I always knew that I needed something for myself that wasn't the kids, wasn't my husband, wasn't the house. Like I knew I wanted to work in some capacity. And in that, you know, first six months after leaving Cosmo, I had, you know, quite a few phone calls and emails to go, hey, would you be interested in this? Do you want to come for a meeting? Would you, you know, this kind of. And every time I thought about it in the few meetings I went to, I just was like, oh, I just don't know that I want that. I don't know that I want to go back into that big media job with, you know, office hours. And otherwise I would have just stayed where I was because I had a really nice cushy warm hug of a position at Cosmo 
Um, and so I quickly figured out, I, I, I don't think I want that anymore. I don't want that. But I know I want something because I know I want to have something for myself. And I think that's such an important thing for women to remember when you do step away from work for your kids is don't step away completely you're you're going to want something whether it's some kind of hobby whether it's launching a business whether it's consulting or doing a bit of freelance whatever it is you do need something for yourself because otherwise you very quickly just feel like I'm giving everything to everyone else but there's nothing for me um or that's keeping me my brain active and keeping you know um so play came about that at the same time that I'd left Cosmo uh, the a good friend who also happened to work in the advertising department at Cosmo she headed up um, advertising across a couple of the magazines um, at Bauer at the time she also left and we'd always been friends and our husbands had been friends they did cycling stuff together and I just always really liked her and we went for coffee and got chatting and both of us are like closet crafters so, you know, like I like to crochet like a nana and have made all my kids those crocheted blankets and stuff like that. So we're both kind of a bit crafty like that and always had that sort of eye for design. And we had a coffee and we just toyed with the idea and we had a few different iterations around craft boxes and different things. And where we landed was that we wanted to create a label. So... God, creating a label, creating play, et cetera, has been like learning 10 different languages. And it's yeah. been a, a fantastic experience and doing it with someone's been amazing. But I think it's like, it was like basically starting from scratch. It's a whole new skill set. Obviously, there are things like, you know, doing the photo shoots and coming up with the ideas and maybe having a, a you know, an, an eye for fashion that that comes from my background. But, and obviously with her coming from, you know, advertising and marketing, she's phenomenal at all of that aspect. So we had good strengths and weaknesses that we were bringing together. Like I was quite obviously editorial and, and she was really advertising and marketing driven. And now we've just learnt like 10 different languages. She, you know, we kind of uncovered that she's this fantastic drawer and she's upskilled in all of the online um, uh, art programs and drawing and procreate and illustrator and all of that. Now she draws most of our designs like even the repeat floral patterns or any of those things so but that's come a long way you know that that wasn't day one we were kind of like oh I look now at the things we did day one that are embarrassing but you only you have to do those things because it's where you learn you know you make so many mistakes along the way and you get shafted by so many like you know sounds too good to be true but often yes it is too good to be true <laughs> so we learn a lot of hard lessons and we figured out what works and what, what you know, what didn't. And, um, and we just kind of went on from there. And we um, uh, have had a, have uh, enjoying it. And I often wonder how long we'll keep going with it. You know, it's been really successful and it's now in quite a few places overseas as well as um, stores around Australia and the iconic and Japan's become a big market for us. But, you know, we often talk about, well, we love it as much when our kids aren't in the age group to wear it. You know the kids that are the driving force and the models and the muses and the inspirations and we love it and and I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe it is the actual process and design that we love, and maybe it's that we do it as well a lot with our kids. So we'll see. But we've also got ideas of um, how we, you know, take this, you know, in 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 a future direction as well. So 
it's been phenomenal. We've learned a lot. And I think one of the big things that that was a hard lesson straight up was you go from being in a magazine or in a in a company like Bauer and a magazine like Cosmo where something pops up. You're like, oh, that's hideous. Send that to marketing. They'll deal with that. Oh, send that to finance. They need to take care of that. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I am marketing and finance and my P and my own PA and all my the own my my own photographer and all of those things. You no longer have the people um, around you. So that for sure has been a learning curve. But in some ways it's been the best bit because we've had to upskill. And I think that's what was exciting me is that I, after being in magazines for 17 years, it's been really fun to learn again and mm. feel out of my depth and feel like I don't know what the hell I'm doing um, and trying to figure that out, you know, like everything from bat, doing bass and, you know, all of the things that, that even now I hate doing it. I'm like, la, 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 I don't want to hear about it, but you have to force <laughs> yourself to do it. because There are no other services and departments around you. So what does navigating work and parenting look like today? Sometimes people want to start their own project, but it actually leads to more work. Have you found that or has it been quite flexible with parenting alongside it? Right now it's perfect and flexible and lovely because we work three days in our office together. And then obviously there's always things that we're doing, you know, you know in the morning or in the evening some nights or whatever and and on the other two days I'll do other bits of consulting or other bits and pieces or like go and get my hair done or meet a friend or go to Pilates or do whatever so it's a really nice balance and I pick the kids up from school every day um, and I can be their taxi driver to all of their numerous things that they've gone on after school uh, and I love that I guess we're at that inflection point now with the business where we've got to make that decision, do we scale it or not? Because if we scale it, it's not going to be three days a week and lovely doing school pickups and all the rest of it. So that's our conversation point right now, whether are we just happy for it to kind of tick along as it is um, and it remain being flexible and lovely and we can take holidays and all the rest of it or you grow it into having, you know, many staff and all the rest of it. So TBC. <laughs> a work in progress. So I also heard you say that Mia Friedman told you that while babies need more physically, as they get older, they demand more from you, maybe emotionally and mentally. What are your reflections on that? And has that been the case for you? My reflection on that is that Mia was 100% right. <laughs> um, in that it totally is like in those early days, you're wiping bottoms and tying shoelaces and blowing snotty noses. Whereas now I look at it with a nine and 11 and a 13 year old, it's way more emotional. It's way more like, huh, she's a bit quiet. What's wrong? Nothing, mum. And then, you know, like two days later or an hour later or whatever it might be, while I'm in the shower and she's brushing her teeth, it's like, mum, so-and-so said this today and did it. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. Okay. We've got to unpack that. And that's a big conversation. Or, you know, I've got one daughter who's quite, you're a bit more reserved and, and percolates on things and thinks about it and maybe doesn't ask the questions or come straight out with it. And then my other daughter is just like the polar opposite, whereas she loves to talk about it over again. And then let's just recap on that. And, you know, um, so both are interesting relationships, but both are equally demanding emotionally in that, like I said earlier, it's not, you often can't have those conversations on demand when mm -hmm. it suits you 
you know, because quick, 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 we've got half an hour before bed. Let's talk about it. Your friends all good? This is good. And teachers, I, it's not, it doesn't happen like that. Even with my son, it doesn't, like, I'll, I'll pick them up and I'll be like, how's your day, mate? Good. No, don't say good. Tell me one thing that was great about the day today. Be like, um, I played handball or something. And then it will be like two days later, he'll go, oh, in class the other day, this happened. And I'm like, oh, what, how, why, did, why have you taken so long to tell me this? And But that will be like while we're walking the dog or, you know, while I'm getting him changed after his swim lesson or something, you know. So there's, there's just interesting times that these conversations come up and quite often it is in that, you know, aisle five of the supermarket where you potentially, you know, it's not the time you thought you were going to have the conversation, but they've decided this mm. is really top of mind there right now and I need to have the conversation. So 100%, it's way more emotional and I think the other thing now as I said to my husband last night I miss the days in some ways where if we had a plan for the weekend it was like the kids just come along and they fall into line with that now before we commit to a plan I'm like checking with the kids going what have you got on this weekend oh okay right so you've got this touch football final and Grace you've got a sleepover so okay well maybe I'll move this to another weekend we find ourselves making moving our plans around their social lives Mm. um so that's you know that's that's just a whole and that's just a new thing that's come up in the last six months so that's a it's a whole you know new curve for us to to get our heads around as the mother of a one-year-old that selfishly does terrify me a bit but something else that we've just touched on that really scares me is my son coming to me upset how do you navigate emotions as a parent and is it something that you've learned as they grow and you grow or is it something that you're just always making up as you go along I think you're always making it up as you go along, you know, like, and I, and sometimes they handle it really well where I think, oh, I nailed that. What good mumming I just did. And other times I think, oh, I completely mishandled that or, you know, I wish I could control Z it and go back and redo that. And, you know, like it, it depends on what the situation is and, you know, what the emotion is because, sometimes it's hard for us to understand you're like I don't I don't get what's going on like why are you acting like this or whatever but I think I keep trying to tell myself you know I follow that what's her name on Instagram it's like Becky be good or Becky Becky Dr Becky good or something like that and she always is like reinforces the need to validate their emotions even if in your head you're thinking this is crazy you are nuts I don't understand (laughs) why you're overreacting to this it's like actually that's only going to make it worse. So instead to be like, oh, right, okay, yeah, I get that that's, you know, really upset you and I I see how that would be frustrating and make you angry and try and, you know, sympathise to bring it down a little bit. And like I said, sometimes I'm awesome at it and sometimes I really suck at it where I I just think, oh, and, and you carry that guilt you know, where a day later I'm still like, oh, I feel really bad. And then I'll have to have a conversation with with him or her and go, hey, mate, or, you know, darling, I'm really sorry, you know, that I handled that wrong. And maybe, you know, you need to communicate with me better because I would have understood it, understood it um, more had you explained fully how you were feeling or, you know, whatever the situation is. But um, I think it's 100% a, a work in progress. Even as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how much responsibility that is and it goes back to what Mia did tell you, whereas my responsibility at the moment with my son who's 11 months old is mostly physical. But when I think about that, it almost like tightens my chest because it's like, wow, there's so much emotional responsibility on parents' shoulders. 
It is. And also you, you become acutely aware, particularly as they get older, that how you react in a situation, whether it's in an interaction with them or whether it's on a phone call with Telstra that's really pissing you off and you're like yelling at them or whatever, or whatever the situation might be, you're, you become acutely aware that they're watching, listening, learning how to handle situations from yeah. you. And then like about that stage now where I hear the, particularly the girls, I hear them repeat things. I'm like, you sound like me. And I'll be like, that sounds awful, but I remember saying that. And I'm like, don't say that. Like you said, mom. And it's not swear words or anything, but it'll just be like, you know, a response to something or they'll have like a little comment to Thea. And I'm like, don't say that. It's like, well, you said it the other day. That's so funny. I almost get that when my husband will complain about or be like, quietly mean to our son behind closed doors I'm like you can't say that he's like you literally called him that yesterday and I'm like yeah. that's a really good point I have one last question for you which is sort of in theme with what we're talking about if you could go back to new mum Bronwyn and give her a piece of advice on parenting or career or navigating both what would it be I think that it would be a big one I think is don't give up everything for your kids like keep something for yourself 100% because I just think even now I look and I've got to future-proof myself because right now my kids are really demanding on me, you know, physically, emotionally, everything. They need me to be their taxi driver. They need me emotionally to help them navigate situations. But as they become older teenagers and then beyond, they're going to need me way less. They're going to want to catch public transport with their friends and not need me to drive them. And all of the, the demands on my time will dwindle a little bit. Um, and you don't want to wind up going, oh, twiddling your thumbs going, what, what do I do now? So I feel like I would say make sure you keep something for yourself so that, you know, you, that you can turn the pressure up and down as you need to according to, you know, the needs and demands from your kids. If people want to find your business or you online, where do they go? They can go to, that is a very good question about now, I don't know the handles. It's a... <laughs> It's play uh, at play, etc. No, it's at play underscore etc. on Instagram. And I'm just Bronwyn McCann. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. I've loved hearing about those heady days of magazines and how you've made work <laughs> work. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.